Chapter Twenty Four of The Three Clerks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. The Three Clerks by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Twenty Four. Mr. Mbuffer accepts the Chiltern Hundreds. It was an anxious hour for the Honourable Undecimus Scott when he first learnt that Mr. Mbuffer had accepted the stewardship of the Chiltern Hundreds. The stewardship of the Chiltern Hundreds. Does it never occur to any one how many persons are appointed to that valuable situation? Or does any one ever reflect why a Member of Parliament, when he wishes to resign his post of honour, should not be simply gazetted in the newspapers as having done so, instead of being named as the new steward of the Chiltern Hundreds? No one ever does think of it. Resigning and becoming a steward are one and the same thing. With this difference, however, that one of the grand bullocks of the British Constitution is thus preserved. Well, Mr. Mabuffer, who, having been elected by the independent electors of the Tillytudlam burghs to serve them in Parliament, could not, in accordance with the laws of the Constitution, have got himself out of that honourable but difficult position by any scheme of his own, found himself on a sudden a free man, the Queen having selected him to be her steward for the district in question. We have no doubt but that the deed of appointment set forth that Her Majesty had been moved to this step by the firm trust she had in the skill and fidelity of the said Mr. Mbuffer. But if so, Her Majesty's trust would seem to have been somewhat misplaced, as Mr. Mbuffer, having been a managing director of a bankrupt swindle, from which he had contrived to pillage some thirty or forty thousand pounds, was now unable to show his face at Tillytudlam or in the House of Commons and in thus retreating from his membership had no object but to save himself from the expulsion which he feared. It was, however, a consolation for him to think that in what he had done the bullocks of the British Constitution had been preserved. It was an anxious moment for Undy. The existing Parliament had still a year and a half, or possibly two years and a half, to run. He had already been withdrawn from the public eye longer than he thought was suitable to the success of his career. He particularly disliked obscurity, for he had found that in his case obscurity had meant comparative poverty. An obscure man, as he observed earlier in life, had nothing to sell. Now Undy had once had had something to sell, and a very good market he had made of it. He was, of course, anxious that those halcyon days should return. Fond of him, as the electors of Tillytudlam no doubt were, devoted as they might be in a general way to his interests still, still it was possible that they might forget him if he remained too long away from their embraces. Out of sight, out of mind, is a proverb which opens to us the worst side of human nature. But even at Tillytudlam, nature's worst side might sometimes show itself. Actuated by such feelings as these, Undy heard with joy the tidings of Mbuffer's stewardship, and determined to rush to the battle at once. Battle he knew there must be. To be brought in for the district of Tillytudlam was a prize which had never yet fallen to any man's lot without a contest. Tillytudlam was no poor pocket borough to be disposed of this way or that way, according to the caprice or venal call of some aristocrat. The men of Tillytudlam knew the value of their votes, and would only give them according to their consciences. The way to win these consciences, to overcome the sensitive doubts of a free and independent Tillytudlam elector, Undy knew to his cost. It was almost a question— as he once told Alaric, whether all that he could sell was worth all that he was compelled to buy. But, having put his neck to the collar in this line of life, he was not now going to withdraw. Tillytudlam was once more vacant, and undetermined to try it again, undaunted by former outlays. 
To make an outlay, however, at any rate in electioneering matters, it is necessary that a man should have in hand some ready cash. At the present moment Undy had very little, and therefore the news of Mr. Mbuffer's retirement to the German baths for his health was not heard with unalloyed delight. He first went into the city, as men always do when they want money, though in what portion of the city they find it has never come to the author's knowledge. Charlie Tudor, to be sure, did get five pounds by going to the Banks of Jordan, but the supply likely to be derived from such a fountain as that would hardly be sufficient for Undy's wants. Having done what he could in the city, he came to Alaric, and prayed for the assistance of all his friend's energies in the matter. Alaric would not have been, and was not unwilling to assist him to the extent of his own immediate means, but his own immediate means were limited, and Undy's desire for ready cash was almost unlimited. There was a certain railway, or proposed railway, in Ireland, in which Undy had ventured very deeply, more so indeed than he had deemed it quite prudent to divulge to his friend and in order to gain certain ends he had induced Alaric to become a director of this line. The line in question was the Great West Cork, which was to run from Skibbereen to Bantry, and the momentous question now hotly debated before the railway board was on the moot point of a branch to Ballydehob. If Undy could carry the West Cork and Ballydehob branch entire, he would make a pretty thing of it. But if, as there was too much reason to fear, his Irish foes should prevail and leave— as Andy had once said in an elegant speech at a very interfluential meeting of shareholders, and leave the unfortunate agricultural and commercial interests of Ballydehob steeped in Cimmerian darkness, the chances were that poor Andy would be well-nigh ruined. Such being the case, he had striven, not unsuccessfully, to draw Alaric into the concern. Alaric had bought very cheaply a good many shares, which many people said were worth nothing, and had, by dint of Undy's machinations, been chosen a director on the board. Undy himself, meanwhile, lay by, hoping that fortune might restore him to Parliament, and happily put him on that committee which must finally adjudicate as to the great question of the Ballydehob branch. Such were the circumstances under which he came to Alaric with the view of raising such a sum of money as might enable him to overcome the scruples of the Tillytudlam electors, and place himself in the shoes lately vacated by Mr. Mbuffer. They were sitting together after dinner, when he commenced the subject. He and Mrs. Val and Clementina had done the Tudors the honour of dining with them, and the ladies had now gone up into the drawing-room and were busy talking over the Chiswick affair, which was to come off the next week, and after which Mrs. Val intended to give a small evening party to the most elite of her acquaintance. "'We won't have all the world, my dear,' she had said to Gertrude, "'but just a few of our own set that are really nice.' "'Clementina is dying to try that new back-step with Monsieur Jacques Tenap, so we won't crowd the room.' Such were the immediate arrangements of the Tudor and Scott party. "'So, Mbuffer is off at last,' said Scott, as he seated himself and filled his glass, after closing the dining-room door. "'He brought his pigs to a bad market, after all.' "'He was an infernal rogue,' said Alaric. "'Well, I suppose he was,' said Undy, "'and a fool into the bargain to be found out.' "'He was a downright swindler,' said Alaric. "'After all,' said the other, not paying much attention to Alaric's indignation, "'he did not do so very badly. Why, Mbuffer has been at it now for thirteen years. "'He began with nothing. He had neither blood nor money. "'God knows he had no social merits to recommend him. "'He's as vulgar as a hog, as awkward as an elephant, and as ugly as an ape. "'I believe he never had a friend and was known at his club to be the greatest bore that ever came out of Scotland.' and yet for thirteen years he's lived on the fat of the land. 
For five years he's been in Parliament, his wife has gone about in her carriage, and every man in the city has been willing to shake hands with him. And what is it all come to? said Alaric, whom the question of Mabuffa's temporary prosperity made rather thoughtful. Well, not so bad either. He's had his fling for thirteen years, and that's something. Thirteen good years out of a man's life is more than falls to the lot of everyone. And then I suppose he has saved something. And he is spoken of everywhere as a monster for whom hanging is too good. <laughs> they won't hang him. Yesterday he was a god, today he's a devil. Tomorrow he'll be a man again, that's all. "'But you don't mean to tell me, Andy, that the consciousness of such crimes as those which Mbuffa has committed must not make a man wretched in this world, and probably in the next also?' "'Judge not, and ye shall not be judged,' said Andy, quoting scripture as the devil did before him. "'And as for consciousness of crime, I suppose Mbuffa has none at all. I have no doubt he thinks himself quite as honest as the rest of the world. He firmly believes that all of us are playing the same game and using the same means, and has no idea whatever that dishonesty is objectionable.' "'And you, what do you think about it yourself?' "'I think the greatest rogues are they who talk most of their honesty, "'and therefore, as I wish to be thought honest myself, I never talk of my own.' "'They both sat silent for a while, "'Undy bethinking himself what arguments would be most efficacious "'towards inducing Alaric to strip himself of every available shilling that he had, "'and Alaric debating in his own mind that great question which he so often debated "'as to whether men, men of the world, the great and best men whom he saw around him, really endeavoured to be honest, or endeavoured only to seem so. Honesty was preached to him on every side. But did he, in his intercourse with the world, find men to be honest? Or did it behove him, a practical man like him, a, a man so determined to battle with the world as he had determined, did it behove such a one as he to be more honest than his neighbours? He always encouraged himself by that mystic word, Excelsior. To him it was a watchword of battle, repeated morning, noon, and night. It was the prevailing idea of his life. Excelsior! Yes, how great, how grand, how all-absorbing is the idea! But what if a man may be going down, down to Tophet, and yet think the while that he is scaling the walls of heaven? But you wish to think yourself honest, he said, disturbing Undy, just as that hero had determined on the way in which he would play his present hand of cards. Oh, "'I've not the slightest difficulty about that,' said Undy, "'and I dare say you have none neither. "'But as to Mbuffa, his going will be a great thing for us, "'if, as I don't doubt, I can get his seat.' "'It will be a great thing for you,' said Alaric, "'who as well as Undy had his parliamentary ambition. "'And for you too, my boy. "'We should carry the ballad of branch to a dead certainty, "'and even if we did not do that, "'we bring it so near to that expectation "'it would send the shares up like mercury in fine weather.' They're at two pounds, twelve shillings, and sixpence now, and if I am in the house next session, they'll be up to seven pounds, ten shillings before Easter. And what's more, my dear fellow, if we can't help ourselves in that way, they'll be worth nothing in a very few months. Alaric looked rather blank, for he had invested deeply in this line, of which he was now a director of a week standing, or perhaps we should say sitting. He had sold out all his golden hopes in the wheel Mary Jane for the sake of embarking his money and becoming a director in this Irish railway and in one other speculation nearer home, of which Andy had a great opinion, viz. the Limehouse Thames Bridge Company. Such being the case, he did not like to hear the West Cork with the Ballydehob branch spoken of so slightingly. "'The fact is, a man can do anything if he's in the house, and he can do nothing if he is not,' said Andy. "'You know our old Aberdeen saying, "'You scratch me, and I'll scratch you.' 
not only what a man may do himself for himself, but it is what others will do for him when he is in a position to help them. Now, there are those fellows, I am hand in love with all of them, but there is not one of them would lift a finger to help me as I am now. But let me get my seat again, and they will do for me just anything I ask them. Vigil moves the new writ to-night. I got a line from him, asking me whether I was ready. There was no good to be got by waiting, so I told him to fire away. I suppose you'll go down at once, said Adric. Well, that as may be, at least, yes, that's my intention. But there's one thing needful, and that is the needful. Money, suggested Adric. Yes, money, cash, rhino, tin, ready, or by what other name the goddess would be pleased to have herself worshipped. Money, sir. There's a difficulty, now as ever. Even at Tiddy-Tudlam money will have its weight. Can't your father assist you? said Adric. My father? I wonder how he'd look if he'd got a letter from me asking for money. He might as well expect a goose to feed her young with blood out of her own breast, like a pelican, as expect that a Scotch lord should give money to his younger sons like an English duke. What will my father get by my being member for Tiddy-Tudlam? No, I must look nearer home than my father. What can you do for me? I? Yes, you, said Undy. I'm sure you don't mean to say you'll refuse to lend me a helping hand if you can. I must realise by the ballad de Hobbs, if I'm once in the house, and then you'll have your money back at once. It's not that, said Adric, but I haven't got it. Oh, I'm sure you could lend me have a thousand or so, said Undy. I think a couple of thousand would carry it, and I could make out the other myself. Every shilling I have, said Alaric, is either in the Battle de Hobbs or in the Limehouse Bridge. Why don't you sell yourself? So I have, said Undy, everything that I can without utter ruin. The Battle de Hobbs are not saleable, as you know. What can I do for you, then? Undy set himself again to think. I have no doubt I could get a thousand on our joint names. That blackguard Maroon would do it. Who is Maroon? asked Alaric. "'Oh, a low blackguard of a discounting Jew, Christian. "'He'd do it, but then heaven knows what he would charge, "'and he'd make so many difficulties "'that I shouldn't have the money for the next fortnight.' "'I wouldn't have my name on a bill in such a man's hand on any account,' said Alaric. "'Well, I don't like it myself,' said Undy. "'But what the deuce am I to do? "'I might as well go to Tiddy-Tudlam without my head as without money.' "'I thought you'd kept a lot of the Mary Janes,' said Alaric. "'Ah, oh, so I have, but they're gone now.' I tell you, I've managed a thousand pounds myself. It would murder me now if the seat were to go into other hands. I'd get the committee on the Limehouse Bridge, and we should treble our money. Vigil told me he would not refuse the committee, though of course the government won't consent to a grant if they can help it. Well, Andy, I can let you have two hundred and fifty pounds, and that is every shilling I have at my banker's. They wouldn't let you overdraw a few hundreds? suggested Andy. I certainly shall not try them, said Eric. Eh, "'You are so full of scruples, so green, so young,' said Undy, almost in an enthusiasm of responsiveness. "'What can be the harm of trying them?' "'My credit.' "'Fala, what's the meaning of credit? How are you to know whether you have got any credit if you don't try? Come, I'll tell you how you can do it. Old Cutwater would lend it to you for the asking.' To this proposition Alaric at first turned a deaf ear. But by degrees he allowed Undy to talk him over. And he showed him that if he lost the Tiddy-Tudlam-Bergs on this occasion, it would be useless for him to attempt to stand for them again. In such case, he would have no alternative at the next general election but to stand for the borough of the Strathbogie in Aberdeenshire. Whereas, if he could secure Tiddy-Tudlam as a seat for himself, all the Gabalunzi interest in the borough of the Strathbogie, which was supposed to be by no means small, should be transferred to Alaric himself.'
Indeed, uh, Sandy Scott, the eldest hope of the Gabalonzi family, would in such case himself propose Alaric to the electors. Castork Cottage, in which the Honourable Sandy lived, and which was on the outskirts of the Gabalonzi property, was absolutely within the boundary of the borough. Overcome by these and other arguments, Alaric at last consented to ask from Captain Cutwater the loan of seven hundred pounds. That sum Undy had agreed to accept as a sufficient contribution to that desirable public object, the reseating himself for the Tiddy-Tudlam borough. And as Alaric on reflection thought that it would be uncomfortable to be left penniless himself, and as it was just as likely that Uncle Bat would lend him seven hundred pounds as five hundred pounds, he determined to ask for a loan of the entire sum. He accordingly did so, and the letter, as we have seen, reached the captain while Harry and Charlie were at Surbiton Cottage. The old gentleman was anything but pleased. In the first place he liked his money, though not with any overweening affection. In the next place he had done a great deal for Alaric, and did not like being asked to do more, and lastly he feared that there must be some evil cause for the necessity of such a loan so soon after Alaric's marriage. Alaric, in making his application, had not done so actually without making any explanation on the subject. He wrote a long letter, worded very cleverly, which only served to mystify the captain, as Alaric had intended that it should do. Captain Cutwater was most anxious that Alaric, whom he looked on as his adopted son, should rise in the world. He would have been delighted to think that he might possibly live to see him in Parliament, would probably have made considerable pecuniary sacrifice for such an object. With the design, therefore, of softening Captain Cutwater's heart, Alaric in his letter had spoken about great changes that were coming, of the necessity that there was of his stirring himself, of the great pecuniary results to be expected from a small present expenditure, and ended by declaring that the money was to be used in forwarding the election of his friend Scott for the Tiddy-Tudlam district burghs. Now the fact was that Uncle Bat, though he cared a great deal for Alaric, did not care a rope's end for Undy Scott, and could enjoy his rum-punch just as keenly if Mr. Scott was in obscurity, as he could possibly hope to do, even if that gentleman should be promoted to be a Lord of the Treasury. He was not at all pleased to think that his hard-earning mordures should run down the gullies of the Tiddy-Tudlam boroughs in the shape of muddy ale or vitriolic whisky. And yet this was the first request that Alaric had ever made to him, and he did not like to refuse Alaric's first request. So he came up to town himself on the following morning, with Harry and Charlie, determined to reconcile all these difficulties by the light of his own wisdom. In the evening he returned to Surbiton Cottage, having been into the city, sold out stock for seven hundred pounds, and handed over the money to Alaric Tudor. On the following morning Andy Scott set out for Scotland, properly freighted, Mr. Whitbidgel, having in due course moved for a new writ for the Tiddy-Tudlam borough in the place of Mr. Umbuffer, who had accepted the situation of steward of the Chiltern Hundreds. End of chapter 24 Recording by Simon Evers